Have you dreamed of bigger things for your life? Then you are in the right place. Each week, you will be given tips on how to change your inner dialogue, conquer your goals, and ways to step into a higher version of yourself. I'm your host, Lauren Kubat. I'm a motivational speaker who hosts personal development events. I'm a sought-after fitness instructor, a wife, and a mom of two young boys. I'm obsessed with all things personal development, and I believe anyone can achieve the life they want. Let the Become Your Vision podcast be the inspiration you need to step into greater things. Now let's go. Hi, welcome to the show. I hope you're doing well. I love talking to you because like I've mentioned before, if you are a regular listener of the podcast, it's like therapy for me. So I'm coming to you today to record this intro in my car. And I'll be honest with you, this is day four or five where I either threw out my back or have a muscle strain and I am like super frustrated. I my last week my back was bothering me a little bit. I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, aches and pains. And then after I taught class one of the days, I was bent over and happened to sneeze. And ever since then, my back has been so, I wouldn't even, I don't know, like sore, but then also shooting pain when I move the wrong way. And my workouts have been affected. Um, And then today, like my mental health has been affected because you know, exercise is something that I love to do. It's how I, you know, um, work through stress. And then when you can't do things full out, it's extremely frustrating. And the topic that we're discussing today is intuitive eating. And it's still, it's so bizarre because you would think that, in this day and age that we can eat things and make choices for our body based on, you know, what, what feels good. And unfortunately that's not always the case. We feel like we have to constantly track and weigh ourselves. And this is something that I struggle with. I'm going to be completely honest and I still struggle with, um, you know, if I do have a treat or things like that, um, thinking about how I can burn it off. And now with an injured back, I feel like I have to be even more intentional about the food that I am consuming so that I don't gain all this weight. And I struggled with myself this morning. So in November, I was like, you're not weighing yourself, Lauren. You're not going to weigh yourself because The scale and I have not had a good relationship and for years I weighed myself every single day and my mood would be determined based on what my weight was in the morning. So I took all November off and it was, I don't know, it was, it felt good. It felt good not to start my morning based on that. And then December weighed myself, I think twice. And the first day I weighed myself, I'm like, ugh. And then the second day I weighed myself and I was like, okay. Because like I lost like, I don't know, a little over a pound. Did I really lose that? No, it was probably water weight and um, things like that. But I was like, this is so stupid that it 
has been, you know, it allows, or I'm allowing it to affect my mood as much as I do. So I actually put it in a high place in my closet so I couldn't have access to it. And today I honestly struggled with like throwing out my back and my workouts being suffered. I was like, well, how much weight have you gained? And I was torn I was fighting myself. Do you do you weigh yourself? Do you not? I ended up not weighing myself. Plus, we leave for Mexico tomorrow. And I didn't want my weight today to affect my whole trip. And, you know, every time I chose to have a cocktail or a treat or something salty to be like, well, your weight's up or whatever it is. And I don't know if my weight is up, but um, I don't want it to affect my vacation. So if you are feeling like this, it's something I'm still working on and hopefully you feel not so alone. It's definitely not something that um, I'm proud of by any means. And I'm just coming to you at a very vulnerable, like frustrating state. And is it the end of the world? No. And in the grand scheme of things, it is so so silly. And this is something that I preach in my classes. I'm a group fitness instructor, not to put um, your weight or your gene size on like this pedestal and let it define you. And I preach it so much. It's because I also need to hear it, hear it myself. So I hope you get so much information from this episode. It is simple but it's also like, hmm, it makes you makes you think. So intuitive eating, basically like the anti-diet. And if you love this show, one of the best gifts you can give to me um, is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't know how to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, just Google it. But that is just, it's just so nice, <laughs> especially for my ego, reading these reviews and watching the number go up. It helps rank higher on Apple Podcasts and get this podcast out into the world even more. And I appreciate you. Okay, enjoy. Hi guys, welcome back to the show. I am super excited to be talking about intuitive eating today. Maybe this is a concept you haven't heard before, or maybe you have, and you don't really understand what it is. I have a guest. Her name is Sumner Brooks, and she is going to tell us all about what intuitive eating is. And Sumner is a parent, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified eating disorder specialist based in Portland, Oregon, who has been working with clients on all levels of disordered eating spectrum for 15 years. She is a co-author of the new book, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, Raising the Next Generation with Food and Body Confidence, Releasing... January 4th, 2022. Sumner is a mom and has put her knowledge, intuition, and parenting skills in of intuitive eating to the test of real life. She's also the founder of an online training platform for weight inclusive eating disorder professionals geared toward dietitians called EDRD Pro. Sumner is passionate about weight inclusive care and empowering people to say no to diet culture. Welcome to the show, Sumner. Hey, thanks, Lauren. I'm really happy to be here with you. Yes, I'm super excited. Um, so let's just, let's dive right into what is intuitive eating for anybody who hasn't heard the word before, or maybe is like, what the heck is that? 
Yes, it's such an important place to start because um, <clears throat> intuitive eating was actually developed um, in the 90s by two dietitians. They refer to themselves as the original intuitive eating pros, if anyone has ever heard that term. And they are Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. They're both based in California and still practicing today, and both longtime mentors of mine that I just am totally indebted to for changing the way that I work and the way that I live and even my own healing. So starting with that, Intuitive eating is uh, the simplest way we can put it is how we are designed to eat biologically, emotionally, physiologically, spiritually, how we're designed to eat without a diet mentality. Mm -hmm. And we are designed with this incredible complex system of neurochemicals and hormones and nerves in our bodies that help us make sense of signals like hunger and satiety and fullness, um, from which we can really take some of that wisdom from the body and decide how we eat, when we eat, what we need to eat and how much based on what's available to us. So that was sort of like a long roundabout way of saying that intuitive eating is just our naturally designed um, way to eat without kind of all these interruptions from diets and diet culture. Mm, okay. So when do you think like all these interruptions have happened? Because um, I feel, you know, especially in the fitness world, it's almost, well, you know, the next fad, the next diet, um, you know, people want to jump on because they want to see results. When do you think we like straight away, excuse me, my, that was my mic, um, from listening to the cues of our body? Yeah. Um, I think it's a little bit different for everyone, but overall we can notice that in in Western culture, where we have a lot of emphasis on appearance and weight management, um, we actually are strayed off of our natural intuitive eating cues pretty early on. And for a lot of people that happens around the time of introduction to solid foods from breast milk or formula. And it has to do not at all with blaming parents or caregivers, but more of just like culturally, this is how we have become conditioned to think about feeding and eating is that we need to control our eating, manage our weight, um, utilize a lot of self-control around pleasure and appetite. And those are things that have really been passed down now for many generations um, so it's hard for a lot of people to identify sort of like when that rift really started for them, for many of us, it's just was passed down to us. And we were conditioned into thinking this way about food and body from a very young age. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of studies that have been done on intuitive eating and even ch childhood feeding. And so we're able to look at the science and notice that for people who are fortunate enough to be raised or grow up in a, in a home or in a setting where there's not a lot of 
diet influence or not a lot of worry about weight and like quote health, um, that people remain on this sort of steady track of just normal growth and development without any need to have this external emphasis on like controlling food and calories and weight management. Mm. So we are around, this is just recording this the Monday after Thanksgiving, we're gearing up for Christmas. This is a time of year of uh, indulging and, you know, all the cookies and things like that. How can we enjoy without feeling like we've just binge on cookies and, and not just in this time, this time of year, but in general, following those, you know, hunger cues that our body's mm-hmm. telling us. Yeah. It's a great question. So now is a time of year when people tend to maybe lean more on the side of the diet in continuum that might feel like they have a lot more worry about what they're eating. They might feel more guilt or shame because there may be certain foods around this time of year that during other times, they're really not that exposed to. So what we see right now is kind of this amplified stress around food and body because there are special foods around, um, And so if someone listening is noticing that they are having more, you know, disturbance with their eating at this time of year, it's really more of a um, kind of just a sign of how much they might be dieting or restricting or controlling their eating at other times of the year and that certain settings around the holidays kind of show us like how hard that is to do or how restricted we might really be feeling. So it's unfortunately not something that we can just make a decision and and necessarily stop doing Mm -hmm. or just, you know, feel better overnight. It's really a process of wanting to, and having patience around healing your relationship with food. If you're having some stress around it. Mm. So how, okay. So let's get into like the basics of, let's say I have a listener and they just, they track every single thing and they feel like if they're not super militant about tracking their food, that they are out of control and are basically eating everything and anything in sight. And then they're left just feeling not good, not just like not good in their body. How can we start incorporating ways of following what our body is trying to tell us? Mm -hmm. So the stress that you're describing there for someone Um, many people think that the problem is in the eating. So Mm. the quote overeating that they're doing and what I would encourage a person who is identifying with this to think about is that, is it possible that the problem is actually in the deprivation and the restriction that is it possible that they could start to see that their desire to eat a lot or eat fast or eat certain foods that are higher in certain nutrients or ingredients? Is it possible that that is a very biologically healthy survival response that our bodies have in response to deprivation 
particularly chronic long-term deprivation, like many dieters live with. So what people tend to feel and think and experience is that they are out of control or that they can't be trusted with these foods. And really the beginning stages of the healing process are to help someone understand that this is not something that indicates that they're broken or that there's something wrong with them. Um, or that feels very hopeless. And this is all clouded in shame for many people, especially for someone who identifies as being someone who is health oriented or fitness oriented. And so that shame layers on top of the discomfort of the eating experience. And we forget, or it's easy to not understand that the problem is actually in the dieting and the restriction and that the responses that are uncomfortable for people are actually the healthy body response to deprivation. So we want to take those beginning steps in the areas around exploring less restriction, having more permission, um, and really thinking about that area first. Mm. Okay. So less restriction and more permission. How do you start to adapt that way of thinking when, you know, tracking and weighing yourself is so ingrained into your mentality. So how, if you had a client, how would you, what would be your approach to listening, you know, um, well, giving yourself permission to enjoy. Yeah. So my approach would be, and there's not just one right way. I think, you know, people take a lot of different routes to healing. So I don't want to at all make it sound like there's one perfect way or one answer, but one place to start. And usually this is the place where people are when they find me and, you know, we're sitting one-to-one or having that session, um, is that it's become so problematic. So something about what's happening for them is really it's causing more harm than benefit by the time somebody is ready and wanting to heal. Sometimes we call that diet rock bottom. Mm. And so a person could spend some time thinking about what is it that's really bothering me about this and kind of locking onto like what we just talked about a few minutes ago is, um, if I want to feel better, or if I want to feel more at peace with food, am I willing to accept that I need to stop fighting with my body? Because that's really what restriction and deprivation kind of is in summary, is that like you're constantly in battle between your appetite and your physiological needs for food and energy and your diet thoughts. So when a person hits diet rock bottom, it's no longer feeling good all of this rigid counting and obsessing is no longer helping them feel more positive, more joyful, more alive. Um, They need to realize, okay, if I want to move forward into healing, can I accept that I need to work with my body and not be fighting it so much? It's because I think that recognizing some of this truth can help people with that acceptance piece that, what we're not saying is just, just accept that you are, you know, going to want to eat certain foods or just accept that at the holiday time, you're going to feel out of control with cookies. It's more of an acceptance around how is it working for you to keep fighting your body? And Mm -hmm. is that the life that you want to keep living? Or 
is there a way that you can move forward and partner with food and partner with your body? And by doing that, we need to start listening and paying attention. Mm. Do you feel like as like a whole, we kind of just have stopped listening to what our body is telling us and going for, you know, foods that are labeled as healthy and, um, just avoiding foods or restricting foods that are labeled as, you know, um, I guess bad. We use the word bad all the time still when it comes to food. And I definitely am trying to, you know, instill into listeners that it's not, it's not bad. It's a treat. You're, you know, you're meant to enjoy because it has that negative connotation around when you use the word bad, like you're, that makes you a bad person when you're just, you know, it's offering a different type of, you know, enjoyment, just like Mm -hmm. a roller coaster or whatever, shopping, whatever it is. Um, but do you, do you see this in your work that it's just kind of like this whole of like, almost like backpedaling and like, it's almost, um, you know, like swimming upstream and trying to change the mindset when it comes to food. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as a whole, yes, our culture is, is totally completely entrenched in dieting. And even for people who don't consider themselves dieters, it really is the default way of thinking now about food. I mean, it's even sadly the way a lot of, you know, nutrition lessons in schools are taught in this sort of good, bad binary, like that there's good foods and that there's bad foods. Um, And, you know, I think for people who are newer to thinking about this, it's not really even about who's right and who's wrong. Are Mm. there good foods or, and are there bad foods and sitting around having an argument about that, you know, could take days and weeks and years, but rather I encourage people to think about it from their own personal perspective. How is it working for me? Mm. How is it working for me to feel bad about eating certain things that I want to eat or to feeling like I have to work something off or punish myself for doing something? And how is it working for me to maybe if they're a parent um, to be sending these messages to my kids that they should feel bad or guilty or shame? You know, we send all of these mixed messages to, you know, to kids, but really it's the world that we're living in, right? We celebrate someone's birthday with a cake Mm -hmm. and then we feel bad for eating it. Right. So it's like, we are just living inside of these just constant conflict when it comes to food. Um, So the term having peace with food is really kind of right on, I think, because it doesn't feel good for people to live inside of that conflict. It takes a lot away from us. It takes a lot out of our cup every day. It takes a lot of energy, time, money. Mm -hmm. Um, And then not to mention that, you know, this huge diet industrial complex that is just here to make money off of our, of, of us feeling like we're not good enough um, is, is really like a distraction, right. From what's important in our lives. So I'm not saying that it's not, um, helpful for someone to like desire to feel good, right. Or to be strong in their body or to take care of themselves at all. But it's once we start realizing how much of ourselves we're giving away to dieting and what that's costing us, um, that people can, can really begin to see, 
like, um, and question, right. Mm. Question. And by questioning, I'm going back to what you were saying with the bad, you know, like feeling, um, bad for eating something when there's a totally different way of looking at it, which is being curious. How does that feel for me? How much of that did I really want? How's this tasting? Mm -hmm. How would it feel for me to keep going? Mm. How would it feel for me to stop here? So we can leave judgment off to the side with intuitive eating, and we can go into our eating experiences with curiosity. Hey, before we continue with the show, I want to talk to you about something that you might not think about too often, but it is vital in keeping you and your family safe, and that's insurance. In today's hectic world, we women have so many roles and things on our plate. Our to-do list seems to get longer and longer. Rachel Davenport, the principal agent at LH Griffith and Company, understands because she is a wife and mother herself. Rachel can assist you with all of your insurance needs, whether it is trying to find the best deals on auto insurance, helping select the most appropriate home insurance coverage, or helping you protect your family with health and life insurance. Rachel does it all. We know what a headache it can be to select the best insurance. So to save yourself precious time and energy, give Rachel Davenport a call today for all your insurance needs. Her number is 864-828-0579. That's 864-828-0579. Or find her on Facebook at Rachel Sells Insurance. All her information is in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. Um, my question too, is, do you feel like I want to go into disordered eating and the levels and do you think, well, basically let's start here. What are the different levels of disordered eating? Sure. Um, so there's, I would describe it as really just a continuum or a spectrum, right? So on one end of this, this dieting and eating disorder spectrum, we have dieting, which is really, um, many people don't realize that that's on the eating disorder spectrum, but dieting, um, for the most part is comprised of behaviors that for someone with an eating disorder, we would be counseling them to stop doing. So things like counting calories or obsessing about their activity or their energy burn, um, spending a lot of their waking thoughts, thinking about food and body and weight loss. Um, so all of the behaviors that we see in dieters, just because someone may not like check all the boxes of having an eating disorder, they are disordered behaviors. So the spectrum starts there and really continues all the way up into diagnosable or clinical eating disorders. And for many people, um, eating disorders don't just show up with one sort of set of symptoms. They really can change and morph over time. Um, Many people experiencing an eating disorder um, in the context of coping mechanisms. And so depending on what's happening in someone's life, they may be experiencing, you know, more severe or less severe expression of these behaviors. Um, But I would, at the top of that spectrum, dieting on one end and eating disorders on the other, we'd have like clinical and severe um, and enduring eating disorders. So Mm. there's not necessarily um, a whole lot of like, 
technical levels of disordered eating, but you'll hear a term called orthorexia, which is more of an obsession and preoccupation with um, kind of eating certain foods for the quality or the health quality of the food and not so much about a focus on a weight control or weight. Mm. So, and I think I've heard of this term in the last couple of years, and I feel like um, there are many people can, that can relate to that one is, you know, uh, the number of nutrient foods you're getting. Um, but also going back to what you said, so like tracking your workout on your iPhone and then weighing yourself every day and then tracking your calories on, you know, my fitness pal. And, um, I don't know if I mentioned weighing yourself, um, or measuring out, um, the certain number of almonds that you have that would that all be considered on, you know, when does that, that those data points that I just given you, when does that, um, is there a, like a, a, I guess, what is the word I'm looking for? Like a line that you cross there, like, okay, this needs to be, you know, you need some help for this Mm -hmm. or is it? Well, it's just different for everyone. So, um, what could feel like a very kind of routine, unproblematic behavior of, of counting calories and meal planning for one person could be really detrimental for another person, but it may look really much the same from the outside perspective. So an eating disorder is really, um, you know, when we look holistically at an eating disorder, it's their mind state. So how distressed is someone around food and body? What is it keeping them from doing otherwise? So what are the costs to this person? And then of course, we also have physical and medical signs and symptoms and problems that come from restricting or purging another behaviors. Um, An important thing to note about eating disorders and disordered eating is you can never, you know, look at someone and know whether or not they have a severe eating disorder or a problem because the same medical problems, the same concerns, um, the same level of severity can of course be look very different on the outside. Um, so yet there's this, you know, physical kind of examination and medical assessment piece, but then there's also like the well-being and the social, emotional, and psychological well-being that all comes into play to um, really determine, you know, how how much is this person struggling? And I think Mm. what's happened in our society is it's very normal to struggle on a pretty high level with food and body. Is it Is it normal? No, but is it normalized? Yes. So many, many people are struggling every day. Some from the moment they wake up, you know, the first thoughts in the morning are about food and body or guilt or exercise. Um, But it's, it's really up to the individual to decide, is this a problem for me? Mm. And if so, do I want to get help? Mm. Um, and our culture unfortunately supports it. So we don't have a really protective environment for, um, seeking help or accessing care. Most people can't afford or access eating disorder treatment. Um, about one out of 10 people will get treatment for their eating disorder. So I think it's important, you know, on podcasts like yours and others that people start to understand that if they're suffering, it's, 
it's normalized, but it's not normal and they can get help for it. And even if they don't have, you know, certain boxes checked on diagnostic criteria, like low body weight or loss of period, things like that, um, that they're still, it can be a problem and they still deserve to get help. So if people are, you know, tracking all their food and avoiding certain social situations, not going out to eat because they might be tempted or they quote unquote, can't have something or can't enjoy something Would that, would you consider that an area that's okay, that's getting a little bit detrimental or it's up to the person to decide whether it's affecting their happiness or not? Yeah, that's a tough question. So it really depends also on the person's, you know, age because developmentally, like a young person, let's say teens and twenties, kind of that, um, that older teenage, young adult years, um, our, our brains aren't even fully developed yet. So in terms of being able to identify risk, right? Like, is it quote worth it to me to be living this, this extreme dieting lifestyle? Um, I don't know that a lot of young people are really developmentally capable of assessing that risk and making a long-term health decision from that. Um, but that's where a lot of people are. So caregivers, family members, friends, I do encourage people to talk to their loved ones if they feel like they might be struggling, because a lot of people do need some encouragement around, you know, maybe just talk to someone, um, get a medical assessment, things like checking hormones, um, you know, bone density. That's not a common, um, it's not a common screening test, but it can be a really important one for a chronic dieter, for someone who has an eating disorder that's not been identified. Because there's a lot of really long-term health risks, bone health being one of them, but hormonal health, um, mental health with that come with restriction that just can go unidentified. Um, so back to your question of like, is it bad enough? Um, there's a lot of considerations. Um, you know, personally for me, if, if something were keeping me from enjoying time with friends and family because of food, that's enough for me to say, whoa, that's a big cost. And if, mm. or my child or my friend, I would hope to encourage them to think about, you know, what is it that's okay about this, that you're willing to sacrifice time with loved ones or joy, um, or vibrant living for your diet, um, mm. to someone else, maybe that's not enough for them. Mm. Um, and so I do think it's really individualized, but I think that the more people can learn about, oh, this isn't, you know, healthy for me, or, oh, this isn't a long-term sustainable way of eating. And it's costing me a lot. Maybe I should think more about this or think, or look a little bit more critically at, at my dieting patterns. Interesting. What would you say, you know, because this is a term people are still trying to wrap their, you know, head around, in, including myself, what would you say like intuitive eating is not, can you still be weighing yourself every day and still tracking to be living this life of intuitive eating? And also what if I'm listening to my cues all the time and my cues are like, I just want to eat brownies every single day all day. Is that an intuitive eater? Yeah. Two really good questions, two mm. separate questions. 
Um, the first about, can I be tracking my food and weighing myself and be an intuitive eater? Um, the answer to that is, is really no. Um, and the reason why is that, um, tracking and weighing are pretty hefty external measures around kind of evaluating what you should eat or, or how you've been eating and how your body is doing. Um, intuitive eating is really, um, internally driven. So we are looking for how we're feeling. We're looking for, um, being energized from what we eat. We are looking for a sense of satiety. We're looking for that sense of permission to eat when we need it, how much we need, um, if a person continues to do the tracking and the weighing, that's actually reinforcing those, those brain pathways that are all about dieting. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be distracting someone away from being able to trust their body. And with intuitive eating, we are building trust and we're returning to trust. So it just becomes really difficult and probably quite frustrating for someone to kind of uh, walk that middle line and do both. Certainly. I think a lot of people do, because I think that's like part of the healing process for a lot of people is that for a while they're in the middle somewhere. So if somebody feels like that's where they are, it's not that, that they're wrong or they're doing something wrong, but it's really understandable um, because we live in this culture that kind of tells us we need to do one thing, but the part of us that wants to heal and like be at peace with food and not worry about food and not live with this disordered eating really needs to be engaging in new pathways and building new relationship with food and leaving those old things behind. Mm, awesome. Um, I want to piggyback on that, that first question that we're just, um, talking about here before we get into well, the brownie question, what are some ways, um, that a person can start incorporating, intuitive eating and little habits that they could put into place where they can start trusting themselves again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hard. Like, let's start there that like for someone who really relies on dieting to give them a sense of, um, validation or enoughness, you know, it can be scary and really strange to start disengaging from that. So bravo to anyone who's doing that um, and where to start. Um, I also want to kind of like, just put this in here that um, someone listening who may have an eating disorder might say, or think, you know, I want to try intuitive eating and for whatever reason, maybe they feel like it's feeling more problematic for them or causing more problems, right? If you have an eating disorder, you probably need some support and treatment. Mm. Um, not to say that intuitive eating wouldn't help because I do it and many people do infuse intuitive eating into treatment. But um, 
this goes back to just how many people are really struggling and might not even really recognize it. So I just want to say that, that like Mm -hmm. if somebody tries intuitive eating and they say, oh, it made things worse or I didn't feel good or, uh, you know, any, any kind of reaction or response. How would it make it worse? Would you say, or what have you seen? Well, sometimes, for example, if someone thinks, well, I'm going to try giving myself permission to eat and they may experience a lot of binge eating, for example, Um, and then they might have a thought that says, see, I can't do this. I can never give myself permission to eat because I just can't control myself. So that's actually a pretty common thought that people have who don't necessarily have support or tools to really guide them in this healing process. Um, But that would be an example of someone having like a reaction to the permission and then feeling like they feel worse. Mm, Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So as far as where to start, I start with people with tuning in. So many times people are eating in a way that, especially if they're tracking or counting things, they're really focused like on the, they've predetermined how much they're going to eat or how much they're allowed to eat. And so they eat it and then they stop when that's gone. Um, and that would be, you know, eating for these external predetermined amounts. So we want to start tuning in by, like I said earlier, being curious, um, being an investigator during the eating experience. So how is this tasting? How hungry am I? Um, how's it feeling for me to keep eating? What would happen if I slowed down? Um, so just asking yourself questions during the eating experience that help you tune in a little bit. And for many people, that's pretty eye opening because they start to realize, Oh my gosh, like I am getting some feedback while I'm eating, if I can get out of my head a little bit and into my body, I really can feel, um, when the right stopping point is, for example. Mm, Okay. So that's, that's one place to start. Another place to start is really deciding to, um, consciously try to disengage from dieting. So stopping taking in content, let's say on social media or reading things or talking about dieting or dieting with other people or going to, like a diet meeting or, or a weight watchers meeting or things like that. So consciously deciding that that's no longer the path that you want to be on and start aligning yourself more with communities or people or support groups, um, that are more geared towards intuitive eating and anti-diet living, um, because that can be a huge influence. You know, we're greatly influenced by who we're around and who we engage with. And so I think that people need a lot on the support end of that. Interesting. Now, okay, so going back, this is kind of a segue too, is like, okay, I'm listening to my body. And like I said earlier, and I just, that's what I want all the time. I just want brownies. They are good. They are, you can add nuts into them, make them crunchy. They are just like so good for my soul. And that is what I continue to eat because that's what my body is telling me. Oh, something sweet right now is good. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm feeling full from it. And how would you go about that? Is that okay? Would you say? Yeah. Oh, I would say that's great. What's not intuitive about that. So keep going. Tell me more about, I didn't hear anything problematic. Mm. Well, I heard was kind of the, the woven in assumption (laughs) that this is bad. (laughs) Yeah, sure. 
Um, the nutritional value, like, aren't you, I mean, there has to be some malnutrition that you're not getting all the nutrients that your body thrives on when you are just eating, you know, constant sugar and you're, you know, and as a result, you may feel tired and slow, um, but still it tastes good and it feels good in, um, the moment. And I'm listening to those cues. I love what you're doing here because this is really how we get into this and really mm. understand this. So some of what you're saying is you're describing some of the body wisdom, some of the feedback with a lot of brownies over and over again. How does it feel? Mm. Not so good. Mm-hmm. Is that really how you want to be choosing to take care of yourself? Is that a way of eating that really aligns with your values, with food and life? So would that be a self-care move to only keep eating brownies when they make you feel that way? No, it wouldn't. (laughs) No. No. So intuitive eating is about self-care and it's about listening to what your body's telling you. And so if you're eating something and your body's telling you, okay, not feeling so good, we need to, we can listen to that. Hmm. But what's different is listening to diet police in your head of you are bad for eating this. You should feel bad. That's like emotional kind of bad Mm -hmm. versus what is your body telling you? You know, sometimes I'll eat brownies or cookies or pie or whatever. And I'm like, that feels good. That does not feel bad. (laughs) So that's the trust. Yeah. Okay. So that's the difference. And that's where we're going is into trust, but you do need to listen. And then the other thing is like, you know, about the questions about malnutrition, we, we don't get malnourished overnight or in a couple of days even. Right. So it's a much broader, bigger picture. Our nutritional status is, do we really think that someone is just going to eat brownies? If they're a two-year-old, yes. <laughs> but even a two-year-old, if you gave them lots of different options, would they keep only eating brownies. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think so. <laughs> we right. just don't. And that's because of habituation. We get mm. bored with foods. Uh, we are naturally seekers of variety of not just nutrients, but tastes and textures and temperatures and flavors. And that's all part of the trust too. Is mm. that like, if you haven't had brownies for two years, you're going to want brownies, 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 but eventually you're actually going to want a tuna salad sandwich or something (laughs) like you're just not going to want to keep eating the brownies, but most people with a diet mindset, they don't ever let themselves really have enough where they're satisfied. Um, they don't get to that point of like all foods are emotionally neutral. So they're just sort of constantly in this like little, little, kind of chronic stage of like deprivation. They've let themselves have some, but they haven't really given themselves permission to eat. But the studies on intuitive eating are looking at things like this. Like, will people naturally seek out a variety of foods? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it unhealthy to give yourself permission to eat? Nope. We actually see that people who are intuitive eaters or who rate higher on the intuitive eating scales, which have been validated, that they have better long-term health markers. They have um, 
better like blood pressure, for example, weight is not calculated in, in there because weight is not a measure of health. So we look at actual measures of health instead of just weight, but at the same time, weight stays more stable for people who are, um, intuitive eaters rather than yo-yo dieting and chronic dieting, which in and of itself, weight cycling is really detrimental for health. Wow. Now would you say, okay, let's say I'm, I'm including another example here. Mm-hmm. Let's say I'm like, okay, I'm done with tracking. It's causing me way too much stress and I'm just going to be in tune with my body. And I do that. And picking foods that are like, oh, this tastes good and stopping when, you know, it's no longer, no longer good and I'm full. And then over time you find that you're like, oh, my jeans don't fit. And I am, I'm not feeling good in my clothes anymore. And how do we follow, go back on, I guess, you're like, you're eating all the things that, you know, feel good and you think are providing you with energy, but then your clothes stop fitting and that doesn't feel good to you. How do you go about that? Yeah. Um, I think there's a few different things that are considerations here. Um, the first being that in our culture and, you know, the vast majority of people assume that a higher weight is not a healthy thing. And for many people, and in many cases, a higher weight is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just Mm -hmm. a higher weight. Um, so somebody who is just now moving into intuitive eating, maybe in the first time in their adult life, um, weight might change, Mm. might go up, might go down, might stay the same. So it's when we attach some kind of judgment to this weight change where people might think something's wrong. And we have to realize that that's also part of the conditioning is that we are conditioned to think that an increase in weight is an unhealthy sign. And when in fact, in a lot of cases, it's the opposite that they mm. might be the healthiest they've ever been wow. they're not dieting anymore. So, you know, body weight does not dictate a person's health. Like just the way that a high weight doesn't dictate, um, you know, that someone is unhealthy. It also doesn't dictate that they're healthy. Right. So we need to be just kind of really pushing aside weight altogether, you know? So if this person is concerned that their body's changing or maybe their weight has changed really quickly, could there be something medically, um, going on with them? Mm. Yeah, there could be. So I don't ever want anyone to feel like they need to ignore their changing body or avoid it, but we just want to stop making assumptions. And we want to stop like demonizing that a bigger body is a bad body. Sometimes we just need new clothes. (laughs) Yeah. And yes. Um, Yeah. And we're, I think we have a ways to go with this one because we, you know, people are still praised when, you know, you lose, you lose weight, like, oh my gosh, you're like, that's amazing. And you look so good and all those things. And, you know, I definitely like to be complimented on, you know, if somebody noticed I'm getting stronger or, you know, the way my body looks and we've attached this to, we are more worthy and we're doing better if we get those sort of compliments. And it's kind of, it's, um, 
detaching ourselves from, you know, anybody else's opinion and, you know, other than our own and going back to what we've been discussing now, if somebody has some, um, health concern, whether it's maybe like diabetes and they have to track, um, would they be considered an intuitive eater? That's also a great question. Um, so diabetes is a medical condition, right? Where we, we do know that there, um, are different parameters for different people. Like just Mm -hmm. for example, on how many carbohydrates their body can healthfully tolerate at one time. Um, intuitive eating can certainly fit in with a medically necessary diet, it's just not necessarily going to look exactly the same for each person. So there's a lot of pieces of intuitive eating that still remain really important. For example, um, letting go of the diet mentality, right? Mm -hmm. Letting go of the um, importance that the scale plays in their life, having permission to eat. So many people who have some kind of a medical diet that they do need to follow, well, what I'm going to ask you, what you, what do you notice about people who say, oh, well, my doctor told me I have to, you know, eat less sodium or can't have carbs. What are some things that you might notice of people who have these restrictions on their diets? Um, come up? I, the attachment to it, you know, it's like, okay, I feel like over tracking potentially or listening to somebody else rather than ourselves. And then also just being in this kind of, you know, world a little bit is realizing that, you know, a doctor is also a person and they don't know, you know, they might not know your body better than you. And that's usually the case (laughs) in my opinion. Those are great points. Okay. Those are great points. Yeah. And I'll just add on to those because those are actually really important, but adding on to that, um, how many people get stuck in I'm being good or I'm being bad right today. I'm being good today. I'm being bad. I got to get back on the diet tomorrow. So it actually like really pushes people into this good and bad thinking on and off. And with something that condition like diabetes, um, it can often worsen what's a person's health feeling like they need to, you know, restrict all fruits and carbs and sugars. And then the holidays come and they feel very out of control or Mm. they're binging, or they're just totally decided they're not even monitoring their blood sugar because they're quote eating so bad and they're going to start again in a week. So we notice a lot of these, um, like, like the big swings back and forth between being good and being bad, when people feel like they have to follow these medical diets and, um, what intuitive eating can help with is being in actually just a better place overall on average, where, because you might have this permission to have a brownie, you could include a brownie with part with your meal Mm -hmm. that, um, makes it more satisfying. And so we really want to think about how satisfaction plays into preventing the diet binge cycle or the on and off eating and intuitive intuitive eating is hugely helpful for that. Um, so intuitive eating also really promotes a person being in charge and having choice. 
So what do I choose for my body? How do I want to eat? Do I want to eat in a way that leaves me feeling energized that I know is taking care of myself, but I also can value how important it is for me to feel satisfied from my food, right? So can we hold more than one thing at one time with our eating and not have it just be this all or nothing thinking about it? Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. So they're really compatible actually. Yeah. Wow. Let's go into, um, I want to finish with how we can raise an intuitive eater because there's all these mixed messages and what our grandparents and our parents told us, you know, we're seeing that as a little bit, it's different. And I definitely want to raise an intuitive eater. I want my boys to be able to listen to their bodies, but some, there is this control. I feel like I'm, you know, I'm working through as far as like, if they're eating goldfish all the time and that is what they're choosing as a mom, I feel like I am a dis be doing a disservice to them when I am, when they're not eating like more quote unquote, this is probably about, you know, with the diet sticks with the diet world and the diet culture is like nutrient dense foods. And, but I know if they are continuing to choose you know, goldfish and chicken nuggets and the things that are highly processed all the time. I know that it can lead to mood swings and more tantrums and, um, crankiness, whatever it is. And so I kind of take on the stress of like, they're not getting enough nutrients. How can we as parents lessen up on that mentality? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. So just by listening to some of what you're saying, I'm like wondering, I wonder where you learned that mm. those thoughts that you're having that feel that are giving you this, just such strong urge to control them, you know, because every parent has those voices that you're describing, but they all sound a little different. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so I wonder, okay, this, this parent heard something at some point that really stuck with them. And then they're really attaching to that as truth for their kids. And then I'm wondering how this relationship of mom being worried about these outcomes and mom's reaction when kids are eating these foods mm. is playing into each other. And I'm wondering how um, parents kind of pressuring um, kids to eat in a certain way is actually causing their kids to not eat the very foods they're wanting them to eat. Mm. Uh, because this is what we see happens in the feeding relationship that there, if parents have their own agenda for really what they want the kids to be eating, kids are really sensitive to that. Mm. And they're also really curious about it. Um, and it happens from a very young age and kids know when there's pressure to eat certain things. And they're way less likely to eat those things. Mm. And they're much more likely to eat the foods that are withheld or limited or, or that they might be yeah, getting a little emotional reaction from parents when they eat them. Mm. So those are really important things that aren't talked about enough is that um, kids unconsciously do have a reaction to our reaction. Mm. So um 
that's a pretty big ship to turn around. <laughs> yeah. And don't get me wrong. Like, I feel yeah. like a lot of people are like, is your child allowed to have this? Is, or they do that. I'm like, yes, we, I take them through the drive-thru at least, you know, once a week we finish every night with, um, dessert. Like definitely they're able to have those things. I, um, for example, so, well, how I grew up one of five highly processed foods. My mom worked a lot. Um, there wasn't a lot of like homemade dinners. We kind of all ate by ourselves. Um, a lot of pizza and like frozen burgers and diet, diet pop and, or diet soda, depending on where you're at in the U S and, um, then I did have a weight you know, weight gain and was made fun of for being chunky. And I didn't like the way I felt. And as a parent, I guess I want to shift that. I don't want my, my kids to feel like the pressure from me, even though maybe they have. Um, but I want to change that if that is what they are feeling, but offering them more variety of foods that, um, you know, aren't, you know, as, as highly processed. And I think one of the best ways that I do do that is leading by example. Like I'm like, I crave, you know, I do like salads. I like the crunch. I like how they taste. I like how I feel afterwards. Um, and all of those things. And then my boys will see me eating salad and would, you know, like those things. Um, but for example, my five-year-old, I feel like he can constantly eat all day every day is constantly when he is bored, he'll go to the pantry and, you know, just be snacking all day. And as a parent, I don't think that is the best habit to create is every time you're bored, you eat. So, um, what, what's your opinion on that? Because I don't want my, you know, my boys to have this disordered way of eating. Yeah. Great, great questions. And thanks so much for, you know, sharing that, you know, of your own vulnerable history, because that's what we all carry with us, right. Mm -hmm. Is our own story. And, um, that is a big influence, right. In how we end up developing our values and what we feel like is important with feeding our kids. And so there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with, wanting your kids to have variety and wanting to have, you know, all the nourishing foods that, that you want for them. Um, I think that we can recognize that all, all kids are really different eaters, right? So I don't know if your two kids are different in the way that they express yes. preferences. Uh, mine <laughs> totally. certainly are. Mine are very, very different, same yeah. house, different food preferences. So right. we got to start there that there's a little bit of a different blueprint for everyone. Um, what you are describing with your son is that you are a little concerned. It sounds like that he's eating in the absence of hunger, that he's eating for reasons other than being hunger. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a really human experience. First of all, um, a lot of us do that. It is distracting. It does feel good. It can be soothing. And so for a parent, I would encourage them to start being curious about this behavior and in terms of wanting to change something, I would think more about, is there a, is there an unmet need? Is there something that could be more fulfilling than having the best option being going for more food Mm. rather than, you know, trying to talk to this child about like, it's not, you know, 
it's not good to eat now, or you shouldn't eat now, or having it be about them and their individual kind of choice, or that they're not allowed to eat, but more um, really seeing them for what's going on and noticing what could, what can I do to either help with some of the structure around, you know, making sure they're getting enough to eat at that meal before. And then what is coming in between these meals for them and why might they feel um, that what they need to do is eat more? Because in some cases, they kids can get hungry pretty often, right? So we don't want to ignore the fact that there could be certainly a child who is hungry between meals. Um, and that's where it gets kind of nuanced and complicated is that we don't want to shame a child for their hunger. Um, but also it's okay for kids to feel hungry. Mm. Like it's okay if it's not quite snack time and they need to know that they're going to have something in a little while. Mm. Um, and so I wonder what you might think about, you know, maybe observing this for a few days and seeing if you can gather any more information about what's really going on in these moments. Um, seeing if you can identify, is there something like an unmet need going on that we mm. can fill this with so that they don't have this void if they are eating and they're really not hungry or can we just be a little bit more clear about how we're handling snacks in the mm. house? And that, um, you know, you're going to say, I'm going to be putting a snack together for you in about 30 minutes. So um, here's what we are going to be doing until then. Um, mm. So it, it's tough because I don't want to assume that like every family has the same situation, right? That there's a parent there that's home during these times, all these things, right? It's really different and there are challenges. So is anything coming up for you around what I'm saying that's either bringing up another question or a thought that's maybe been evoked that you'd like to share? Yeah, totally. There's like two more I want to touch on before we leave. Okay. So um, for my one son that, okay. So, and I don't like to use these labels. I try not to use them in front of them or like my husband and I will discuss, but I don't want my kids to know this is like, yes, the older one is a little bit more experimental, um, as far as foods than the younger one, he would be labeled, um, you know, 10 years ago, whatever, as a picky eater, he doesn't experiment as much. I think texture has always been his thing since he was a baby, even with like formula and things like that. Um, but I don't want to put that on him because then I don't want him to feel like he's, you know, no, I'm a picky eater. I don't eat that. You know, I never liked that. And so I'm not going to like that now. So I try not to use those words around, um, around them. My older son is if I feel like if he's not stimulated, he does get bored. He's very, very active. So I feel like, um, you know, he's constantly, if he's not, because when he's busy, when he's outside playing, he's not thinking about snack, 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 snack. But if he's like, if you, if it's a chill day and we are watching, you know, more TV than usual or whatever, it's like, he wants to snack more, which I think is a, uh, you know, that's human nature. Right. Cause I think about me, I'm like, Oh, I want to snack. I'm not doing anything. I'm going to sit around. Um, this I'm almost afraid, <laughs> afraid to say it because I don't, I almost feel like it, it is wrong. We had, we got to a point where the boys were constantly, um, in the pantry and they're taking out snacks all the time. They're not waiting to dinner for dinner and they you know, climbing up the pantry and all the things. So we did have to put a lock on it. I'm wondering if that is going to, 
lead to like disordered eating. Cause I never want them to feel like food is bad. And that's why there's a lock on the door. It wasn't about that. It was more about the habit of we're just going to be constantly eating all the time. And we're not waiting to the appropriate time to eat our meals. And we're just, it's kind of like a free for all. So mm-hmm. please don't tell me I'm a, ter- a terrible parent. <laughs> you are not a terrible parent. And I mean, I can tell how much you care about your kids yeah. and and I, I can hear, you know, in, in your tone and in you telling the story, like what your intent was and why you felt like that might be a helpful thing to do. And let's just know that every single one of us, we just, we try things out, right? Mm. As parents, we don't yeah. know all like, the answers. <laughs> Hope this works. <laughs> we just do things. Um, so without me being kind of like the, the judge here, um, Sometimes I will have a parent think about how it would feel for them if something, if they were experiencing something. So like, for example, um, one partner might say to their other partner, um, are you really going to have like that whole bowl of ice cream? Oh yeah. Um, and, and then they think that they're just being like, oh, not mean or anything, not critical. They're just asking, are you really going to have that whole bowl of ice cream? And then the other partner might feel like that was an incredibly judgmental kind of comment to make about how much ice cream they wanted to eat. Mm. And I wonder, and so that the partner who's having the ice cream, they might actually start to feel policed right around their eating. And they may feel like they need to hide their ice cream until their partner goes to bed and just eat it in peace alone without judgment. Um, So there's just, what I'm saying is there are humans and people pick up Mm. on this idea when we are being restrained or food is withheld or judged. And I think that in many cases, putting a lock on a pantry could be a message to your Mm. kids that there's no access here. There's not unlimited permission. You can't always eat when you're hungry. Um, So I'm never going to be the expert of your house, but Mm. I do think that you could think about how is that working? You know, have there, has there, have your kids made any comments? Um, Is there seem to be any more problems when the pantry isn't locked? Um, How are they eating over at friends' houses or or grandparents' houses or other places? Um, Are there more food issues or less food issues? Um, I often hear about kids hiding food, like in certain rooms or, or wrappers under the couch or climbing the pantry. And more often than not, it really is a response to some level of deprivation. So Mm. they are hiding this food or they are doing this thing because they feel like they can't ask for help getting it down or because they feel like they'll be in trouble if they mm. eat. So sometimes we just unintentionally send messages that we really didn't mean to send. Mm. Um, but for a young child, any level of deprivation is going to feel pretty strong. It's going right. to be like a pretty strong message that like your eating is something that is judged by someone else and you, and then there may be a consequence for that. Mm. Um, so we, we want to try, if we want to raise intuitive eaters who are not eating 
in this way of compensating for this threat of deprivation, then we really need to try to reduce any threat of deprivation. Mm. That no, I think that's so good because if there was a lock on the pantry and I had to like enter a passcode that I didn't know, I would be pissed, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'd be like, what the hell? And it just kind of goes back to childhood. It, our house was a free for all. Um, we ate whenever, you know, whatever there was. And I feel like as five kids, it was like, you know, whoever got to it first ate everything. So when we got to it, we're like, Oh my gosh, there's crumbs left. It was so annoying. I remember that. But then going to over to my friend's house, she had to ask, you know, permission to eat. And I felt like that was so weird because I never had to do that, but I just, it's weird that I under, um, you know, still, still remember that, but, um, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. definitely something that we are going to consider. And, really we, we forget to close the pantry all the time. So it is often that it is open. It's just, you know, especially our two-year-old, he would eat, we call them, he, it started like the breakfast bars and he, that's what he would eat all the time. And I got to the point where I'm like, he's only eating breakfast bars or like rarely anything else. So then I'm like, okay, this is, you know, getting to be like, I thought maybe unhealthy, but, um, changing that. And I think it's hard you know, especially for our two-year-old, like they can't really communicate my five-year-old. Yes. He'll understand like, okay. You know, and I feel like opening that conversation, what are you feeling right now? Um, and why, you know, are you actually hungry or, um, do you feel like doing something else, but you know, you're wanting to eat instead or whatever it is. But I think that was, um, that was great. Great to bring I up. I just great. have a couple thoughts. Cause I don't want to leave it too open because yeah. I mean, it's such a big, topic, but one of, you know, one of the whole, um, keys in our model, in our book, how to raise an intuitive eater is about flexibility and structure Mm. so that, you know, parents have this great opportunity. Um, and it's really important for young kids who rely on us for everything, especially for food. It's really important for parents to create a structure of eating for the day because Mm. kids just are not capable of doing that for themselves. Mm. So like my son, who's now going to be four, but like when he was two, he would wake up and he'd be like, I want fruit snacks for breakfast. (laughs) And, you know, very little vocabulary, very little ability to kind of like actually think about what's going on. But what they're saying to us then when they want the breakfast bar or the fruit snacks is I'm ready for breakfast. Mm, I'm hungry. And that's what they, that's what's at their eye level. That's what they're remembering. That's one thing they know they like it's finger friendly. It's quick. So they might actually be really hungry in the moment. And that's something that they know is quick. They don't want you to say, I'm going to go take 15 minutes and make you, you know, breakfast. So they're just expressing what makes sense to them. Right. But it's our job as the parents to say, Oh, I can see you're hungry. Let's go sit at the table and I'll bring you your breakfast. Mm. So intuitive eating for kids is not like this free for all of like, just leave it all open and let them choose what they want because it really developmentally, they're not ready for that. They need their caregiver to create the meals for them and create the structure of the meal and snack times. And then along with that, with flexibility so that we show them, oh, you know, when our friend Anne brings over muffins or cookies, we can have one, even if it's not snack time, like that's flexibility, but you're also really showing them consistently. There will be a variety of foods. I am going to make sure meals and snacks are ready for you. And it's also okay if we feel hungry between meals and snacks. 
Yeah. So that's, that's helping them a lot when we create that kind of a routine. So I'm not sure if that also helps you totally kind of answer that question. Yes. And I'm so happy you added that to, um, the point that I made, because I think that is, you know, remembering it, especially with kids, it isn't a free for all because, you know, as we're still processing the things for ourselves, you know, we might, might think that, but adding that structure, especially for a little brain that is still, um, developing and creating healthy, healthy habits. Um, we have been talking, I could, I feel like I could talk with you all day. Where can people find you? Um, I'll include that in the show notes and where they can follow you on social media, but also, um, uh, when your book launches, you have a book coming out as well. So please mention all of that. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Um, people can go to intuitive eating for kids. That's the number four intuitive eating for kids.com. Um, there's different links there to order the book and to learn a little bit more about myself and my co-author, Amy Severson. Um, and then I'm also on Instagram and you can follow me at intuitive eating RD. Awesome. Yes. You brought so much value to this episode. And I appreciate so much and you need to go follow her. Um, because we, I feel like we just like hit the iceberg today. Um, and we've been talking for so long, but I just, like I said, I appreciate you and hope you guys learned so much today. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Lauren. Um, great job on your podcast and yeah. congrats on the growth and thanks for having me. Yes, of course. And you guys remember you got this. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you love this episode, make sure you are subscribed so you know when more episodes come available. My goal is to inspire others to become their vision and one way to get the word out is with reviews. I would really appreciate it if you left an honest review on iTunes and it would mean so much to me. Thanks again and remember to go after the life you want. Bye guys. Bye guys.